Hello everybody. Uh, this week I'm going to be doing something I guess slightly different. I have prepared a reading guide slash overview of the first chapter of Das Kapital Volume 1 by Karl Marx. Now if people like this I could continue to do more chapters. Maybe you know try to get the whole book done over the series of of course many different episodes. Probably you know a chapter an episode, chapter a week, something like that. Which you know I guess would take around half a year. I guess a bit more than that. But if people want it, I would be very happy to continue focusing on this for the podcast. This is going to be, again, a general overview, as well as some of my own thoughts and analysis. I'm trying to make it relatively accessible if you don't want to read the book, but also make it helpful if you you yourself want to go into the book, because there's so much to this that I just, that I can't possibly hope to like, you know, summarize in a in a podcast that's less than like three or so hours, you know. The first chapter is, of course, the commodity, and it is a pretty difficult one. I know that, like, Althusser, for instance, when he was uh, teaching his students, he no longer teaches, of course, because he's dead, he would tell them to skip the first part of Capital and go back to it later. The book as a whole, and a lot of Marx's writing, is incredibly dense, and if one wants to tackle it, is absolutely a challenge. So I thought it might be a good idea to make a series like this. Nevertheless, the book is incredibly well-written, in my opinion, um, especially on, you know, rereading it a couple times. The introductory reading is very difficult. I know that Marx, at the end of his life, was also considering rewriting Capital Volume 1. He died before he could do it. But there's, there's so much within this book that I can't essentialize in a, a, a podcast like this. Capital Volume 1 contains within it, you know, multitude of literary references, humor, insults, classic sort of Marxist stuff. So yeah, without further ado, we can get into it. The first chapter is about the commodity, of course. It's a very crucial element in mature Marx. The commodity has this double-sided nature. It has a use value and an exchange value. So if something has a use value, it essentially means that it has utility to an individual. This is what we consider wealth. So use values concern the physical qualities of a thing. And that thing in some way provides utility to an individual. This subsequently means that use values are first and foremost created by nature. It's important to get down. Use values not created by labor. Now, the other element, of course, is the exchange value. The, the most literal account of this is the value a thing has as it concerns the exchange of another thing. Exchange value is purely relational. There is no exchange value in a vacuum, you know, it's valuable in exchange to what? So not everything has both of these things, importantly. Some things have only a use value. This is possible, for instance, because use values are first and foremost a product of nature. So even in the capitalist system, things like air, natural meadows, mountaintop views, etc. certainly have use values to us, but are not exchange values in themselves. This is, of course, because they are not labored on and then exchanged in a capitalist market. So things that do not require human labor but are still utilities are not commodities. Another example of a thing only having a use value and not an exchange value is if you produce something for your own personal use and it is not at any point put up for market for exchange. You make your own garden and then you take the fruits, the vegetables, bread from the garden and eat them yourself. These are not commodities, they are only use values. 
This is because, again, they're not being produced to be put on the market, and they're not being compared to anything through exchange. Importantly, exchange value isn't a mere product of use value. This is a very essential point that Marx makes in this chapter, that exchange value must come from something else other than the comparison of concrete use values. Of all the different commodities on the market, all have different use values. Use values of a fundamentally different quality. Because again, use values concern the physical makeup of a thing. Because they have different concrete qualities, use values cannot themselves provide a means for comparison. The, the method of comparison would be incredibly arbitrary and would not follow the laws, according to Marx, of capitalist exchange. Use values are a product of nature. They are the physical utility that a thing has. To quote from Marx in this chapter, so far, no chemist has ever discovered exchange value either in a pearl or a diamond. This is a good example of like the, the very clever writing that Marx utilizes in this book. Marx, so Marx argues that in a market of commodities where products are commonly compared and exchanged, the way in which their relational value is determined is far more systematic than merely arbitrarily abstracting how useful they are comparatively. Exchange value is actually a product of the abstraction away from concrete use values. So to trade based directly on concrete use values is of course impossible. The example Marx gives is trading 20 yards of linen for 20 yards of linen. The only way that it is possible to make an equivalence there is when they have the same quality, the quality of the use value of linen. Otherwise, you can't make the comparison. Marx argues that it is actually because exchange value is in reference to a third factor, so not use value directly, that allows it to extract use value and subsequently be comparable to other commodities at a more systematic level. The commonality between commodities that allows for exchange is human labor in the abstract. So labor that is abstracted away from its concrete form, just as, as we talked about before, exchange value extracts away concrete use values. Labor in the capitalist system has the same twofold nature that the commodity has between you know, use value and exchange. So between concrete labor and abstract labor. Obviously, if you are exchanging goods, you cannot compare the concrete type of labor being done on one good to another, as they are of an entirely different nature. You know, just as the use values of one commodity are of an entirely different nature than other use values. The physical thing being done is not of the same quality. And the only way to systematically exchange things is if the only variation is quantity. And the way this is done is abstracting the type of labor required to make a commodity. So it does not matter the varying degrees of radically different concrete forms of labor that make commodities. All labor is of the same quality. It's merely less labor or more labor. And that is what defines value. So exchange is only possible for Marx in reference to value, in reference to abstract labor power. In virtue of a commodity being compared to others, all concrete forms of labor must be abstracted. They must all be turned into the this, this same congealed mass of human labor. Value is imbued onto a commodity by the average amount of time required in society to create it. This abstract human labor imbues within a commodity the substance of value. It gives it a certain quality that all commodities have that allow them to be exchanged. And the way that value is imbued onto a commodity is by the average amount of time required in a society to create it. So again, 
Marx is saying that exchange value is actually a product of value, and this value is a product of abstract labor. And, and the quantity of value is determined by the average amount of time required in society to create the commodity. So this is how different commodities are compared in terms of how much value they have. It's how much average time it takes to produce a commodity. So importantly, value is not imbued onto a commodity based on concrete labor hours. In the same sense that concrete use value is abstracted in exchange, so is concrete labor. So if I take seven hours to make a coat, and the average amount of time it takes to make that coat is one hour, then the code is only imbued with one hour of labor time. This is the socially necessary labor time required to make a commodity that defines value. So the distinction, for instance, between skilled and simple labor is not of a different type, because again, all labor is treated of the same type, but more skilled labor is simply simple labor intensified. So the skilled laborer does one hour of concrete, you know, real labor, and imbues within commodities they make, let's say, two hours of abstract labor. Let's say they make a thing two times more efficiently than if it was made by someone who was not specialized. And Marx argues that because these different commodities that are produced by simple and skilled labor alike are able to be compared through exchange value, that this is the case, that his point is the case. Additionally, of course, if my labor doesn't create any use values, then it isn't considered labor. So you need to have useful labor for it to imbue a commodity. Because of course, a commodity has use value. If you make something and it doesn't have use value, then it's not a commodity. A useful labor is, quote, an activity that appropriates particular nature given materials to particular human wants. Use value, wealth, is derived fundamentally from nature. And, and there's a lot more on this in volume two of Capital. Importantly, useful labor happens regardless of the social formation, regardless of the existence of exchange values, the value form, commodities, etc. If I'm on a desert island, if I appropriate particular nature-given materials to meet, let's say, my subsistence, I am doing useful labor, even though the things I produce, again, are not commodities, because they don't have any exchange. When commodities are compared, the concrete type of useful labor that was done to create it is abstracted. But, of course, at some level, these commodities necessarily require concrete useful labor. So the value of a commodity is determined by, quote, no more time than is needed on average, no more than is socially necessary. So the value that is imbued into a commodity is abstracted based upon the larger activities of the society the commodity is produced, sold, and used within. A commodity is imbued with the quantity of value through the average amount of time it takes a laborer to produce it. So the only way that a commodity is exchanged is through, of course, uh, this average amount of time it takes a laborer to produce it. This is, of course, bizarre insofar as it has nothing to do with the physical commodity. It only has anything to do with the social relations of production it exists within. Logically, of course, when production efficiency increases, the value of a product goes down. So, you know, if it takes half as much time on average for me to make a coat, then the value of the coat is cut in half. On average, it takes half as much time as it did before to make the coat, and so it's less valuable. The best example I can think of here is pineapples, because pineapples in Europe used to be treated as incredibly valuable. You know, there are, I know that there's like a, a, a castle in the Netherlands that is just in the shape of a, of a pineapple. And the reason for this is because in Europe, it took quite a bit of labor hours 
to get a pineapple across the whole world while it was still ripe so you could eat it. Now, of course, pineapples are in abundance. And un unless you're, you know, having a good time with the missus, pineapples aren't particularly valuable. They're just a vegetable. And so the value of it went down. Importantly, the coat, I'm just going to use the Marxist analogy. You could, you could use the pineapple as well. But the coat has the exact same use value as it did before. As it did before, production efficiency doubled. And that is only possible because value abstracts from concrete use values. The coat still has a use value the same as it did before, but somehow, in terms of the comparison with commodities, because of this production efficiency, it is worth less. This, of course, highlights how in capitalism, you have an interest to produce things more efficiently. You have an interest to be on the cutting edge of production so that your labor, or more specifically, the labor of your workers, is more efficient compared to the rest of the industry who is producing the same commodity. So that the commodity that your laborers produce exchanges for more things. This also shows how, you know, if your archaic method of production is less efficient, then your labor is simply worthless as others produce your product more efficiently. This facet of the commodity reveals something very important about the nature of capitalism. Production is king. You know, all outdated, inefficient methods of production die. Feudalism dies because, for a multitude of reasons, but while it is a far more stable social method of production than capitalism, it is wildly less efficient. You know, Marx notes the massive uptick in societal wealth, most of which, of course, goes to the upper class as a result of capitalism, as the use values that everyone has, especially the upper class, but, but everyone has access to increases, even if, or expressly because, the value of all of these things rapidly goes down because you are more efficiently able to produce them. Of course, all the conditions of production, not just, you know, increases, upticks in efficiency, define the average amount of labor required to go into a commodity that determine the value is imbued within it. This is the sort of Marxist law of value. So if, you know, coffee beans have a bad season and it takes more average socially necessary labor time to make the coffee beans, then they have more value. If coffee beans have a really good season and they're more efficiently created, then their value goes down. Because on average, it takes less time, less amount of labor to produce a coffee bean. The law of value also does not necessarily relate to market price. You know, value is a larger scale economic phenomena, and there are most certainly, and I'll talk about this later uh, in, I guess, more depth, there is certainly room, particularly in smaller instances, for the law of value to not be strictly followed. So there is this distinction between real prices and ideal prices. Even if price and value are distinct but related things, it's still, still relevant. And more of this in chapter three. So like, you know, one may wonder how the law of value deals with the situation where the amount of time produced to make coats stays the same. So, you know, let's say same amount of production efficiency, the value of it stays the same, but way more people are making coats. So there's way more labor going into it. The Marxian value of the coat, the average amount of socially necessary labor time to make a coat stays the same, but the price drops because the supply is bigger than the demand, the, the price goes down, etc. And on the question of supply and demand, Marx has quite a bit to say about it. I mean, he wrote a whole book on the subject, but he will definitely concede that it affects real prices. But again, there's something going on in the background of capitalist production that he says cannot be explained simply by supply and demand that can be explained by the law of value. As I said, for instance, in relation to how the law of value explicates this push for production efficiency in capitalism. 
Supply and demand also only really works to meaningfully overpower the law of value when there is way too much or way too little of something. In, in these cases, the ideal price according to law of value is radically different than uh, the actual price. And these instances are usually corrected by production. So uh, the law of value is at work in the background of this phenomenon. This is an important general critique that Marx has throughout capital of many bourgeois economists. Uh, that what they are concerned with is not necessarily wrong, but that it's only the surface level of the real machinations of the commodity. So they're like, you know, they're in Plato's cave pointing at the shadows, and Marx wants to bring them up into the sunlit realm of the forms. The true machinations behind the commodity, behind supply and demand. So anyways, moving on. Importantly, one can have a division of labor in a society without commodities, but not the inverse. You cannot have commodity production without a division of labor. This is firstly because to compare commodities directly requires that the average amount of labor time needed to make a commodity is in some way abstracted in a comparable sense. Commodity exchange only really sets meaningful and accurate values after commodities are traded regularly. So in, in capitalism, much of production is also arranged in such a way that it produces commodities, as of course exchange values are determined by the amount of labor power that goes into it. So workers are exploited and dominated and pushed around, forced to make subsistence, laboring in particular ways that produces commodities with the most value, but also that there are divisions of labor that aren't contingent upon the commodity. So Marx has early notes here of the Asiatic mode of production, which is a controversial topic for a multitude of reasons. But also an example of Marx gives of a division of labor not contingent upon the commodity and commodity production is the internal division of labor within a factory. So if a factory, for instance, produces internally both linen as well as a coat, so, you know, they weave the linen and then tailor the coats, then this labor isn't arranged merely for exchange. It is simply handed off. It, of course, at the end of it is arranged for exchange um, because it's a capitalist factory, but the linen and the coat are not commodities to each other. Their exchange value is not relevant to how they are produced. The cloth is made to linen, the linen handed off to become a coat. We can think of, for instance, a very large capitalist firm of our day to emphasize this point that Marx is making, because the firms of our day are far larger than even, like, I think Marx would have imagined, where a massive amount of labor is organized internally by central management. The end goal, of course, of these large firms is still to produce something on the market, but this demonstrates that an advanced division of labor can be organized not purely for the exchange of goods on the market. The managers of the firm make internal calculations not intimately related to commodity production. Uh, there's a book called The Allocation Problem in Financial Accounting Theory by Arthur L. Thomas that goes over this. The general point being that the management of a larger scale uh, firm cannot actually be calculated based upon exchange. There's an inherently uh, political calculation there. Um, in a Marxist fashion, you could, following this, argue that um, if these massive firms were, let's say, managed democratically, there would be have to be more conditions than mere workplace democracy, of course, but that these firms could organize a massive, complicated division of labor not dedicated to commodity production. So at the end of the division of labor, that would now produce a product not for exchange on the market, but instead for use values. This post-capitalist world, this massive organized division of labor would abolish the commodity form and produce things, again, merely for use values, so not for commodities. 
This is a, a, a sort of a short tangent, also driving from the fact that in Capital there is a sort of a similar short tangent in the middle of this chapter related to this point. In this chapter, Marx also, of course, continually analyzes the example of 10 yards of linen in a coat when comparing two commodities. This is because 10 yards of linen is the amount required to make a coat, and the coat is twice as valuable as the 10 yards of linen, because, you know, twice as much labor is imbued within the coat than the 10 yards of linen. You know, the only difference between the 10 yards of linen and the coat is labor. It's the same physical thing. It's just rearranged in a particular way in which there is twice as much on average labor that goes into making a coat than there is that goes into making 10 yards of linen. And, and this is a, a general example used by Marx because in his context, owning a coat was a sign of wealth. So the twofold nature of the commodity is importantly crucial to its peculiarity. You know, Marx writes of the queer characteristic of the commodity. Uh, queer not translating to gay in German, actually. Um, I looked this up. Queer just means strange, or the, the translation of the English word queer into German. So, you know, Marx is not cancelled, don't worry. Back to this sort of twofold nature that I talked about before with use value and exchange value. A commodity has its physical atomic material form, where it is seen as a use value, which is derived from nature, and then it has its value form. This is, you know, when Marx is talking about abolishing the value form, we're talking about abolishing this half of the commodity, where it is only a quantum of abstract human labor. And, and this value is subject to very widely based only on production meaningfully, which is a human social relationship and has nothing to do with its use value. The latter element is purely social, even if it is, of course, an objective phenomena that can be measured. Uh, it has nothing to do directly with the former. Your, the value, the amount of labor imbued within a commodity, has nothing directly to do with its use value. And Marx notes of how we treat the commodity as essentially the reversed version of transubstantiation. So, in the Christian activity of eating the body of Christ and, you know, drinking his blood, the physical thing, the cracker or the wine, does not change. But its metaphysical substance does, and it turns into the blood and the body of Christ. You know, transubstantiation literally means the changing of substances. The wafer is still a wafer, and the wine is still a wine, yet somehow you are eating the blood of Christ. And importantly, this is not meant to function in Christianity as a metaphor. It's meant to be literal. And the commodity is essentially, for Marx, the direct opposite of this. The value of two commodities, their substance, and Marx does use the word substance to describe the value of a commodity um, as a direct relationship or comparison to transubstantiation. So their substance is the exact same, these two commodities. They are worth the same. They are both imbued with abstract labor. But the physical thing, their use value, the physical chemical composition are radically different. And, and it's this peculiarity that obscures the nature of the commodity. It makes it hard for people to realize that the different commodities and their you know, physical manifestations are not truly similar, do not truly have uh, the same quality that, that can allow them to be compared and only appear so as a result of a social relationship and that this social relationship is a result of the congealed mass of abstract labor done in relation to different commodities. The way that the value changes has nothing to do with use values, only to do with the amount of average time it takes to make those commodities. 
massively fluctuating and massively changing based upon human social relationships. While most people treat these things as if they are a product of the physical thing themselves, the thing is physically equivalent to the other thing. The thing is updated, it's easier to produce, it's less valuable, has less value, now it is no longer the same, it is lesser. Now of course it isn't lesser, and this is what Marx wants to get to the core of, is why is there this peculiarity, why is it that the commodity is so confusing, and that people aren't able to realize the product of these comparisons between commodities, what gives them an exchange value, is not a product of their use value, is not a product of the physical composition of the thing, it's a product purely of human social relations. So this is, uh, the phrase Marx gives to this is commodity fetishism. This is a fetish in its anthropological sense. So, you know, it's not a sexual fetish, although I think, what is it, Freud sort of comes up with the, the word, the idea of a sexual fetish in which in which you attribute non-sexual things, I guess this isn't Freud, but you attribute non-sexual things to sexual significance. This is not the, the sense that Marx is using it, unless of course you're like a pay pig, you literally fetishize money. I guess that counts as commodity fetishism, but no, commodity fetishism is in reference to its anthropological use. A fetish, in the anthropological sense, refers to polytheistic religions um, in which an object is imbued with uh, religious significance. So, you know, there is an idol to the gods that represents their power on earth, and as a result of a human social relationship, a religious one, you imbue a quality onto that object that obscures the true nature of both the physical object as well as the world around you. So, you know, you treat the idol to the gods as if your relationship to it ensures that the crops grow and that the rain comes down when it needs to, in reality, this idol, this fetish, is only a product of human social relationships. The significance you ascribe to it is not a part of the physical thing itself. In a similar sense, the commodity is a product of a labor relationship between people that hides the true nature both of the exchange of commodities as well as the physical commodities themselves. It makes it seem as if the value of a commodity is literally related to the object, when in reality it is a product of a social relationship. You know, how can it possibly make sense that when efficiency in, let's say, producing a coat doubles, the example before, that the coat has the same use value, but has its exchange value halved? This is obviously because less labor is required to produce the coat on average. But again, this has nothing to do with the physical coat. I wanna, I wanna emphasize this, make, it as, make this point as many times as possible, because it's the most essential, obviously, point of the chapter. But again, we are prone to see the coat as less valuable as a result of this purely social relationship. One of the reasons that we do this, that we think that the coat halving in value has something to do with the physical coat, is because of the vast and broad social division of labor. So, you know, no one sees or understands or notices how other people labor. They only see the commodities that they produce being exchanged with other commodities on the marketplace. It, and it's hard to notice when you see that, that the reason that they're being exchanged and the law that allows them to be exchanged that is being followed relates to the average amount of time it takes to labor on that commodity. It's in this sense that I mentioned Plato's cave before, but that commodity exchange is actually the opposite of Plato's cave. So in Plato, the cave is the realm of obscuring the forms of reality. The sunlit realm of the forms is of course the, the true world. For Marx, the sunlit marketplace is actually where commodities are obscured. 
and it is only after one dives down into the realm of the factory and in the general production of commodities, this area that is hidden, that isn't really seen because of how advanced the division of labor is within capitalism, there are so many different ways people are laboring in obscure areas that you're not able to observe that you aren't actually able to see what's going on in those factories, in, you know, I guess the, the equivalent of the dark cave. So the bourgeois political economists who obsess over just how the commodity acts in itself for Marx, ignore the cave and only pay attention to commodity exchange. They ignore what's really going on with the labor in the factories and in other areas in which commodities are produced. This is also importantly how ideology works for Marx. In fact, the confusion surrounding the commodity is a very intimate element of ideology, capitalist ideology for Marx. Ideology is not a product of this sort of grand conspiracy between the bourgeois class to hide the truth about the nature of production. The bourgeois class in a lot of ways, uh, particularly, you know, Marx makes this point about bourgeois political economists, aren't like, they don't secretly know the truth and they're trying to hide it. They themselves don't know it either. Bourgeois ideology and the way it treats the commodity as not a product of socially necessary labor is the product of a complicated and advanced division of labor, you know, of commodity fetishism. That makes it impossible to see that value is defined by socially necessary labor. So just as the Christian is meant to treat the substance of the wafer and the wine as altering itself purely as a result of the religious social relationship it exists within, the, the laborer or, you know, everyone else treats the commodity as having the exact same substance that allows them to be comparable, despite the fact that their physical composition is entirely different. All right, so it's in this sense that we can see how Marx wishes to abolish labor. And you might be confused by that, and that's understandable. But I think it, even by this description, it would seem pretty clear that Marx wishes to abolish the value form, to abolish the commodity. And what that means is removing the two-sided nature of most of our use values. If the commodity does not exist, then the amount of socially necessary abstract labor time that goes into making products actually doesn't matter at all. It has nothing to do with the division of labor, where products go how they're evaluated by individuals, etc. It's in that sense that Marx wishes to abolish labor. Abolish labor as an element of this larger calculation of commodity exchange. We often associate Marx with the labor theory of value. Yet it's important to emphasize that he has never said that he has one, at least in mature Marx. Marx only says that he has a theory of value. Uh, the labor theory of value is a position held by, you know, bourgeois political economists like David Ricardo and Adam Smith. And Marx is attempting to critique them. That's why the, the subheading to capital is critique of political economy. He is actually critiquing the labor theory of value because Marx wishes to abolish the state of things in which abstract labor imbues a product with value. Even if he does, of course, argue that socially necessary labor imbues a product with value in the current economic system. It's important to emphasize again that use value is a product of nature. First and foremost, not a product of labor. And in a world in which the value form, the commodity is abolished, there is only use values. As a result of this, the socially necessary labor time that goes into producing those values doesn't matter. Marx does not think that labor is transhistorical. What does that mean? It means that there are divisions of labor, there are modes of production, like communism, in which, according to Marx, use values that are labored on do not have 
that average amounts of labor imbued into them. Ricardo, for instance, who has a labor theory of value, thinks that regardless of history, labor creates value. There is no world in which labor does not create value, whereas Marx wants to abolish the reality in which labor creates value. That's the important distinction. It's sort of pedantic, but it's an important distinction to make because Marx, and you can, you know, read the chapter, give me an example of where he says that he has a labor theory of value. He does not. He says that he has a theory of value. But anyways, that'll conclude the main episode. I still have quite a bit um, to go over. Um, particularly, I want to go over relatively in depth the development of the value form and the four stages of it. But everything I provided here, I think, is a relatively good uh, starting point for it. Um, I know a lot of capital reading guides and notes don't really mention the four stages of the value form that much. I think they're pretty important, but I'll finish this on the premium episode for this week. I'll try with the capital reading guides or whatever to include the essential information in the main one and then more intimate details in the premium. But that's on my Patreon at patreon.com slash for $2 a month. I'm producing these episodes, of course, for exchange on the market. We love commodity production, don't we, folks? It's the best, folks. Um, but yeah, thank you to Please Don't Fire Us, as well as uh, Sierra for supporting me on Patreon. And I will see you in the premium.